at the end of the day, animal sourced foods are the most critical for human health, period. There's just no denying that. If you take the emotion out of it and just look at nutrient density, it's animal products that we absolutely need and is keeping people both obese and undernourished or, you know, malnourished. Welcome to the Australian Pork Limited podcast, Next on the Menu. Our podcast is a curation of conversations on the future of food. We're continuing to chat to some incredible people across the entire food industry, and it's been a huge eye-opener to be able to explore their perspectives on the innovation that will change the world of food as we know it. I'm Mitch Edwards, General Manager of Business and Innovation at Australian Pork, and I'm looking forward to co-hosting this podcast episode with Andrew Billy Baxter, Chair of Australian Pork. Welcome, Billy. Thanks, Mitch. Good to be here. In this episode today, we'll be speaking to Diana Rogers, all the way from the USA, who's making a big splashes advocating for better meat using mainstream media with her book and film, Sacred Cow. Before we chat to Diana, Billy, a bit of background on Sacred Cow. It's a welcome change from the global anti-meat narrative that's taking more space in the public debate. Do you think we'll get a balanced view on this, Billy, when we look at the issue, but also the impact on social media? Yeah, look, I mean, social nowadays means you get access to all sorts of, um, you know, information, some real, some fake, and, and, and it'd be great to talk to Diana in a minute about that because I, I know, you know, um, she touches on that. I think we've got a really good story to tell with pork here in Australia. There's been a lot of changes made over the last 10 years. We are one of the most sort of sustainable farming types. Uh, you know, uh, we're able to capture a lot of the methane and turn it into biogas. We've got a lot of recycled water being happening. I think we've, we've saved uh, a huge amount of uh, water in our production process over the last 10 years. We've got some great stats on that. So it'll be good just to hear from Diana about that balance, you know, about, you know, how we can do things better, you know, what some of the best practice things are particularly in the USA and other places. So I'm looking forward to having a chat with her. And I think, Billy, what you've just said, it's about getting our story out there, which we need to really focus on. All right, then, let's get the show on the road. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our next guest, Diana Rogers. Diana has recently co-authored and launched her book, Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat and an Incredible Feat of Hard Work. She is also about to release a companion film, which she directed and produced. Diane is a real food nutrition sustainability advocate. She is an author of two other books, runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast, and is an advisory board member of Animal Welfare Approved and Savory Institute in the US. Diana speaks internationally about the intersection of optimum human nutrition and regenerative agriculture. Diana, welcome to Next on the Menu podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Diana, great to have you on. It's sort of hard to know where to start given the magnitude of the work you've done and it's clearly your life's work in building a case for meat being good for you and that whole balanced piece around that and also being good for the planet. Mm -hmm. And your book and the film breaks down that debate into three areas from what I've seen, sort of the environmental side, the ethical side and the nutritional side. So I'm just keen just to you know understand a bit more about the book and, and those three themes and, and what you've discovered. Sure. So in the book, I called it sacred cow really because cattle are in the spotlight, right? They're, you know, cow farts are ruining the environment. Red meat is going to give you cancer and uh, heart disease and diabetes. And it's wrong to kill beautiful animals. And I, I think especially cattle because they're, they look more like dogs than, <laughs> well, I don't know, pigs <laughs> look a lot like dogs too. But so I really 
decided to break it down in a book. And I uh, started with nutrition. I'm a registered dietitian. So I have a graduate degree in human nutrition and I run a clinical practice helping people lose weight and feel better. And one of the magical things you can do to help someone lose weight is increase their animal protein intake. So most of the people that come to me are severely low in protein and animal protein is the most satiating. So it makes you feel so full and the most nutrient dense food that we can eat. And I go through why the recommendations both in the US and Australia are way, way, way too low for animal protein. So that's the nutrition side. And then we moved into the environmental side, talking about why all the claims against livestock are really misrepresented, especially from a land use perspective, from a a feed perspective, how, you know, people say, well, well, you know, it's better to just eat the grain than to run it through an animal. It's it's so inefficient that way. And I, I talk about how amazing it is that, you know, you could eat a few pounds of corn or you could just eat one pound of meat. And I, as a dietitian, would highly recommend people go for the meat than the corn. So I go through the water use, land use, feed use and talk about emissions and how biogenic emissions from livestock are actually completely different than emissions from the oil industry where they're pumping things straight up in the atmosphere. It's not part of a cycle where livestock emissions are actually part of a biogenic cycle. So things get reabsorbed. And then in ethics, I pretty much break down every ethical claim against eating meat I'm never going to win an argument with an ethical vegan, but I also don't think that you can really have an intelligent ethical debate without understanding the environmental and nutritional importance of, of animal products. And so I pull that in and I, I really dive into why we're so biased against meat. Where does that come from? And yeah. And then the film project really just bloomed out of, you know, halfway through writing the book, I realized that, you know, yet another, vegan documentary had come out and I was like, okay, well, if I really want to reach people, I need to make a film too. So I put the book aside. I started working on the film. I did a crowdfunder. I raised money just from my following on social media and also from a handful of companies and individuals. So the film is now just about to release. The book released this summer and it's doing very well. There really isn't any piece that, you know, has all of these pieces tied in together in a book. And there's certainly no films out there that are counteracting all the vegan propaganda films that are out right now. Well, Diana, you're saying that the government dietary guidelines are wrong. Can we touch on that more? I'd really like to hear more about that. These guidelines that are talking about protein requirements are really based on very poor science. They're based on nitrogen balance studies. So this is very outdated, highly variable from individual to individual. So you can't really extrapolate that into a population. And also they're the minimum required to avoid severe disease. Like they're not the optimal amount for like really great health. And so when we look at the other recommendations for vitamins and minerals, those are the optimal amount. But when we look at the recommendations for protein, it's actually the minimum amount. And so I went through the research, I looked at all the studies that were testing higher protein diets, 
There's only actually one randomized control trial that looks at children who are food insecure and what happens when they get a little bit more meat versus extra calories or just extra dairy. And they found that the group that got the extra meat actually excelled behaviorally, academically, and physically. And so we know that, you know, kids who are food insecure need to be eating more meat. And yet we have policies that are happening in the US. And I'm sure in Australia, they're pushing it too, where they're trying to pull meat out of school lunch programs, which I, as a mother and a dietitian, am really, you know, there's just absolutely no evidence to support that at all. But it seems to be like an easy way out, just to a blanket statement um, that any meat's bad rather than getting into the detail of how much meat's good and a balanced diet. So just take meat out and satisfy the loudest voice. Yeah, but you know, there's still really good evidence that even a very high meat diet is great. So people who are pregnant or lactating or growing, so infants, children, and adolescents, and then anyone over 40 actually needs way more protein than even, you know, somebody who's just in their 20s and 30s and healthy. And then if you lift weights, you need more protein. So there's just so many great reasons to increase protein up to, I've seen studies that research up to three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. That's way, 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 that's probably, I don't know, five times more than what the current RDA is. That's my diet. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I wouldn't mind just getting your perspective on that balance. You know, we've talked about the environmental side, the health side, the ethical side. Does one area have more of an influence over the other? Did you discover that through writing the book than doing the film? The book and the film really lay heavily into the environmental case against meat because that's where it's getting so vilified right now. So it's pretty easy to win against somebody who's arguing for a plant-based diet based on nutrients, right? I mean, that's just straight science and you kind of can't win by saying that we shouldn't eat animal products. It's a food that humans have eaten for 3.5 million years. The ethical side, again, as I mentioned, you're just never going to win an argument with an ethical vegan. But the environmental side, the studies against livestock are really not good. They're they're not using good methodology. It's, you know, conveniently blamed for the majority of our global warming when, you know, that's really easy for the fossil fuel industry to get behind because then all the attention goes on the livestock industry. And so there's a lot of really powerful people who are stand to make a lot of money from the environmental vilification of livestock. These are the grazing lands, the rangelands of this country. Nearly 900 million acres of them, over a third of the United States, devoted for generations to the raising of livestock. The most nutrient-dense diet that we see for humans involves raising animals from grasslands into a nutrient-dense food that humans can eat. There are a number of nutrients that we can only get from animal foods. We do need to consume animals. Just I want to touch on the environmental side because you gave us a nice sneak peek of the film, um, which we were very uh, very lucky to have had a, a quick look at, Mitch and I. But I want to touch on that whole sustainable farming piece, the regenerative agriculture, the carbon positive farming, because again, I think there's positive stories to tell there. And uh, you know, early on in the film, you showed sort of the Midwest, and and one of the you know problems, rightly, is that there's not enough turnover of different crops in the land, and you know, it's getting a bit too one dimensional out there. Maybe keen to just tell our listeners a bit more about that. 
About monocropping and why it's bad? Yeah. 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 So we go through it in the book too. So a lot of people, when they fly over the United States and they'll see big patches of squares or circles and they think that that's normal, but that's those large patches of monocrop where it's just one single crop for hundreds and hundreds of miles of just corn or just wheat or just soy is completely not okay for the wildlife or birds for the landscape that what needs to be there. Is that a problem in Australia as well? I don't think it's as bad, but there's certainly big areas that would have, you know, majority canola or majority wheat or things like that. So. But having lived in the US and fl- traveling a lot around the US, I do remember that, Don. It just stood out so much that there would just be huge, big patches. Mm-hmm. Whereas we do have a more of a mix here, I think. Yeah, like, we do. Yeah. 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 So the Midwest in the United States is our breadbasket. That's the nickname for it. And it's where our most fertile soil is. And that was built because of bison that were pooping, <laughs> uh, grazing and pooping on the ground and building up topsoil. And what we're doing in the United States is absolutely destroying our topsoil with chemical agriculture, monocrop agriculture. So in order to plant hundreds and hundreds of acres of one crop, you need to annihilate whatever was there before. So whether it was a prairie or woods or or anything, you have to completely decimate whatever was living there before. Those animals are either going to die or scurry into other parts, displacing the animals that live wherever these new ones are moving to. Then you plow up the soil, which releases tons and tons of carbon. You're, of course, chopping up any of the little critters that are underground. And then you drive through, you plant one crop, you heavily spray it with insecticides and pesticides and herbicides that are further destroying the health of the soil and any other life that might even try to make it there. And then through the harvesting, you're actually, again, chopping up little bunnies and and other little critters that are living in there. So the amount of death that actually happens in order for a field of corn or wheat or, or canola to be able to make it is quite a lot. And I'm not even talking about all the downstream effects. So literally downstream when the rain comes and it washes the topsoil away, clouding up the rivers taking with it the chemicals, killing the fish, killing the animals that need to be eating that fish, creating massive dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's just incredibly destructive and we can't continue farming this way. And yet this is what is proposed as the most sustainable way to produce food and to eat food from the health perspective too. This is absolutely the worst type of food that humans could be eating. So so everything really ties together. It's it's the ethics, it's the amount of lives that are killed when you can just, you know, slaughter one cow that would be almost 500 pounds of, of meat that would feed a family for a year. So think when you're looking to cause the least amount of harm for your diet, uh, eating large livestock that were raised in a good way is by far the most ethical way to eat. But Diana, do you know, All I hear all the time is that people don't see that. All they see is that it's vegetable, that it's natural, whatever. But it's like a big trade-off that they don't see all that you're talking about, the the devastation that it can cause by um, over-farming land. All they see is that an animal is dying when we kill a cow or kill a pig. And that's the conversation that we really need to focus on with the public so that they see the big picture, not just that a cruelty is killing an animal and a beef or or lamb or pig. Exactly, exactly. I mean, 
People used to live on farms. Now in America, it's less than 1% of people are, are farming. And the farms we have here are massive, gigantic farms. So they're not really these small-scale integrated farms like we used to have in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And so, you know, I think this comes down to just being, you know, overly urbanized, overly consumer-driven and, you know, just completely detached from nature and being afraid of death is really what the thesis of the book and the film is. How do we start telling some of these stories, you know, better, the positive ones, you know, to turn around this dialogue that, to your point, has, has gone, you know, heavily the other way? Yeah. I mean, as somebody who's lived on farms for the last 18 years, my goal is to not only help consumers understand why animal products are good from a nutrition and environmental perspective and, and ethical, but also to help livestock producers tell this message. So I go to livestock conferences and talk to animal scientists and farmers and uh, ranchers about how to communicate this to their customers and, you know, non-scientific people. And then I go to health conferences and talk about the importance of why people should switch to, you know, better meats and things like that. Um, and then through my social media, I'm just talking to the general public about the benefits of, of animal protein. So my, my number one concern is human health. And I don't think that we should be sacrificing human health for these made up, you know, goalposts of saving the environment. I think there's definitely improvements that can be made across the sectors of, of livestock production. But at the end of the day, animal sourced foods are the most critical for human health, period. Like that's, there's just no denying that if you take the emotion out of it, and just look at nutrient density, it's animal products that we absolutely need and is keeping people both obese and undernourished or, you know, malnourished. So on my website, sacredcow.info, I actually have developed a ton of infographics. Actually, my graphic designer lives in Tasmania. And so those are designed to help people, you know, I take one topic at a time. So I'll take the water usage, for example, and make an infographic about why the water footprint studies are incorrect. And then I'll go after the livestock feed and why livestock feed is actually largely, you know, food that is inedible by humans. And so I'll just kind of take it step by step by step and break it down. But it's really kind of, do you guys have the game whack-a-mole? In Australia, like yeah, yeah, at carnivals yeah. <laughs> or fairs or yes. Yeah. So I liken my job to playing that game, right? So you like hit them with the greenhouse gas argument and, and dismantle it, which takes like a PhD dissertation. And then all of a sudden they're coming after you about water. And then you hit the water one and then all of a sudden it's meat causes cancer. So then you have to explain why the studies that talk about meat causing cancer are actually just observational studies and they can't prove cause. And then it's, you know, it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to eat animals. <laughs> and so it's, it can be really, really hard. And the, that's why this book and film took me so long to write and produce. Diane, you've talked already a lot about nutrient density. There are arguments we can get all we need from plant foods or supplements. So why isn't this recognized more widely that the balanced diet? Well, there are genetic reasons why some people might do better on a plant-based diet than others. For example, 45% of all humans can't convert 
beta carotene, which is the plant sourced version of vitamin A into the active form of vitamin A. And so all of a sudden right there, you have 45% of all humans would be vitamin A deficient if they were to only eat plants. And there are other reasons too that, you know, it takes a lot of planning to be a vegan. It takes a lot of cooking. It takes a lot of time to eat all that stuff. I mean, that's when you look at gorillas, they're like chewing all day long. And when you look at vegans, that's what they're doing. They're snacking all day long because you, it's just really hard to get that volume of food in that you need in order to give you the nutrients you need. And it's especially hard to get the right proteins because it's just really, you know, you can get from a 200 calorie piece of beef, you can get 30 grams of protein, but you would need to eat 750 calories worth of beans and rice to get that same amount of protein. And you're still not going to get the vitamins and minerals that you can get from beef. And we, I think we also need to look at the privilege aspect too. So, you know, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, privilege and what diet is best for people that can't afford, you know, good food, but not everybody has the privilege to go to a CVS or, uh, you know, any kind of pharmacy and get their iron tablets and B12 supplements. There's a lot of places in the world where only livestock can thrive or they, you know, might not have a doctor or, or any kind of store around for hundreds of miles. They need to get their food from animal sourced food. They can't just go get their B12 supplement and their goji berries and, and their, you know, I mean, in America, if I wanted to go vegan, I could get my supplements, I could get my kiwis, I could get my avocados, you know, here in the wintertime in Massachusetts. And that's just a privilege that a lot of people don't have. I want to just continue on the nutrition theme. Uh, you talk a lot in the book and the film, you know, about whether it's meat or processed meat that should be, you know, part of the uh, part of the dialogue there. And you also talk about the fact that it's hard to isolate, you know, with, with a lot of these studies, it's very hard to isolate, you know, someone who might eat meat might also be doing other bad things, not exercising, smoking, drinking, whatever it might be. I'm just keen for you to, to talk us through that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, so fresh meat, there's no direct cause at all. They did find a little bit of an association with bacon, with processed meats and cancer, but the association was extremely weak. So what they found and then what the media reported were two different things. So what they found was that, so the average human has about a 5% chance of developing colon cancer in their lifetime. If one was to eat five slices of bacon every single day for their entire rest of their life, their chance of getting colorectal cancer goes from 5% to 6%. But the media reported that as a 20% increase in your chance of getting cancer. When, you know, smoking, for example, increases your chance of lung cancer by 30 times, all right? And so eating five slices of bacon for the whole rest of your life doesn't even double your chance of getting it. And so that's statistically not even significant. You want to see a risk of at least double before you're even concerned at all. So in the context of a good, healthy diet with fresh vegetables and a good lifestyle and you know, exercise and fresh air and low stress and all the other things, access to good health care. There's no concern at all that I have about eating processed meats. Humans have also been processing meat for a really long time. Prosciutto is a beautiful thing. And it's really not the hot dog or the burger that's the problem. It's the bun, it's the sauces, it's the large 
French fries. It's the large sodas that people are drinking with it. And the overall sedentary lifestyle that people have, that's the real concern to me, not the burger. In fact, that would be the healthiest thing of, of all those things. Yeah, so um, basically, um, I can keep going with my couple of slices of bacon a day. I probably should cut back on the booze and the cigarettes. Got that. <laughs> but moving along, I don't know whether you've got it over, over there, but we've got like meat-free Mondays mm-hmm. and other programs like that. And actually, and also traction gaining of taking those into the schools and into, into workplaces. What are your thoughts on those and how do we address those? Uh, so in the book and film, I'm actually incredibly critical of those programs. Again, as a dietitian, I have done a lot of research. There's no evidence that removing meat from children's diets will lead to better outcomes. So they should be, if they're going to do this in all of the schools, they should be basing this on evidence. Here in the United States, they're doing that in the New York City public school system. So that's the largest school system we have here. 70% of those kids in New York City public schools are either homeless or low income. These kids that might be either the most nutrient-dense meal that they're getting all day or the only meal they're getting all day. These meat-free school lunches are just, you know, a slop of beans and some salad. That's not what's going to help kids. Absolutely. You know, if you want to feed hungry people, it's not with salad. It's with meat. That's the way to go. And so I think that people, and I get into this even more in the book than in the film, but people are really they're stressed out about our failing health and about the climate and they feel like meat is the cause. They want to pin it on something and it feels like, you know, meat is something bad and that comes from an easy scapegoat. It's an easy scapegoat. scapegoat. In fact, that was going to be the name of the book and film was scapegoat. And I go into why too, it has to go, it has in Western societies, it goes back to the seventh day Adventist church which actually is how the dietetics movement started. So there's still a lot of weird religious bias in our dietary guidelines uh, in the US and in Australia. I want to touch on lab-grown meat as well as a you know potential solution that's been discussed. And interestingly, overnight, we've seen a piece of research come out from Sydney Uni and Curtin University here in Australia around Gen Z's you know, potential adaption of it. Interestingly, 72% of Generation Z just said they're not ready to accept it, which is quite interesting, even though they are a very environmentally and animal welfare savvy you know, cohort of younger people coming through. So just what are you th- your thoughts around lab-grown meat? Uh, in the film, we're actually and book quite critical of that as well. That is uh, you know, going to do very well for investors and further removes people from their food source it's way more expensive than producing real meat. It uses a lot of fossil fuels and, and other high energy consuming processes in order to make it. We haven't even seen it done at a scale that makes any sense. And the inputs are monocrop agriculture, which I described earlier as the worst form of agriculture. So you, you have to make that meat out of something. And so you have to grow soy or wheat or, you know, some kind of uh, monocrop in order to then have the stock in order to make the lab meat. And so I don't see this making any sense other than for someone to make a lot of money. Yeah. And I suppose it's seen as an answer to to killing animals. And, and I think that sort of touches on the ethics side, the fact that animals live and die to create food. 
because it's not something that's widely discussed, or at least here in Australia, yet you make no apology for doing so in your film. What do we need to understand better, or at least in the consumer landscape, to get that conversation going? That's a hard one because, again, people are very scared of death. Like here in America, most Americans don't have a will. They don't want to admit that they're going to die. Everyone thinks that they're going to live forever. And, you know, we used to have to encounter death on a regular basis, but now we can just kind of farm it out, right? Like we don't have to see a chicken die. We just go buy it in a supermarket. We, you know, send grandma to a nursing home. We don't have to worry about her dying in the house or care for her. And so we just don't encounter death or have to deal with it. And we'd rather not think about it because it's a scary thing. And one of the most basic laws of nature is that you need death in order for life to happen. So all life comes from death. Everything is just recycled molecules from something else. And that's a really deep concept that uh, people yeah. aren't ready to accept. And, you know, usually for somebody who's avoiding meat, it takes a major health crisis, which comes, you know, at some point when they're not eating meat, they'll either develop some kind of um, vitamin deficiency or, have, you know, have some other kind of health crisis where they need to start eating meat again. So the average length of a vegan is about three months before they start eating meat again. And so, you know, some might make it longer, but eventually your body's cries for nutrients are going to overpower you and you will start eating meat again. And then they actually end up becoming my best customers and followers because they want to buy meat that was raised well. And, you know, they're very concerned about ethical treatment of animals, which I advocate for as well. Once a vegan gets a waft of bacon, they're gone. <laughs> they're back. <laughs> I just want to talk about, you know, the future of farming because many of our pork producers here uh, do mixed farms. You know, they might also be doing, you know, canola and wheat and sheep and and I just want to, you know, what's your view on the future of it? In you know, if we're sitting here in twenty years' time, what's your hope where farming and our food systems will be? Well, I think there'll still be industrial scale agriculture, but I do think it'll be more efficient and also more humane because consumers just aren't going to tolerate inhumane animal treatment any longer, and the livestock industry is going to have to get more transparent about how they, you know, produce their livestock. I think that there's going to be a lot more regenerative farming, and I hope there's going to be a lot more regional scale food systems because right now, like here in America, we have five or four companies that are controlling all of our meat or the majority of our meat. And we saw during COVID how you know one slaughterhouse shutting down really impacted everybody. Like you would go to the grocery stores and there was meat rations. You could only buy a couple packages of meat. And I think everybody it really was a wake up call for everybody. And so everyone I know that raises meat direct to consumer actually got sold out within months of COVID starting because people, you know, got nervous and they wanted to stop buying their meat from the large packers and start buying it from smaller scale producers. And I think that's a good thing. I still think that there's efficiencies at the industrial scale that you can't beat but there's always ways that the livestock industry can improve. And I think partnering with large corporations um, like McDonald's is actually doing some really cool stuff. 
I work with some companies here in the US that are, you know, slowly getting into more regenerative practices with smaller lines. And, you know, that's the way we're going to make a change. It's not just with the small guy that only raises like 15 pigs. It's going to be with the large companies that are realizing that consumers are looking for that. And I actually traveled to Thailand not too long ago, working for a pharmaceutical company to explain to Asian pork producers why there's a growing demand for better pork in Asia to try to get them to stop using so many antibiotics because even pharmaceutical companies want the antibiotic use in livestock reduced because there's just not going to be enough antibiotics left for humans. And so there are, there's definitely improvements to be made with ventilation, with vaccines, and with animal welfare practices that I think are going to really come into play in the next 20 years. It's a really big picture, isn't it? And, and a lot of which is uh, you are covering in your book and the film. And by the way, we from the pork industry congratulate you and thank you. But what I'd like to know is where has the passion and drive for this come from for you personally? You know, what led you to this? Sure. So as a kid, I was actually really sick. I was uh, very, very underweight and... It wasn't until I was 26 that I found out I had celiac disease, which is the allergy to gluten. So that led me down studying nutrition. But at the same time, I had this love of being outside and worked on farms ever since I was 17 years old as a, as a summer job. And then I married a farmer and um, who was a vegetable farmer at the time, but then realized that you know incorporating livestock was important for the fertility of the soil, for the vegetables. And so... We raised pasture-raised pigs, sheep on grass, um, using rotational grazing and organic vegetables and chickens and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was in marketing before, which is where I think my desire for like good messaging comes from. But then I ended up, after I had my second child, I went back to school and, and got my graduate degree in nutrition because I wanted to learn more about nutrition. I wanted to help people eat better and I was realizing that the food we were growing on the farm was actually the ideal food for people to eat. And it wasn't this ultra processed food that's being sold in the grocery stores and, and what I grew up eating. And so I started realizing pretty quickly after I became a dietitian that all the conversations around sustainability and healthy eating were focusing on a vegan or vegetarian diet. And nobody was talking about a meat inclusive diet from a really like a, a health and environmental perspective. So I realized that somebody needed to say something. And so that's that's the direction I went in. And so now I have a, a nutrition practice. I help people all over the world recover their health with real food, including more animal products in their diet. I work with a lot of recovering vegans and vegetarians, actually, who, who had some health problems from those diets and, and talking to them about pulling meat back in. And I no li longer live on the farm, but I'm still a huge fan of regenerative farming and, you know, have just made it my passion basically to help farmers and consumers appreciate better meat. That's a great story. And, and in regards to the book and the film, how can our listeners get their hands on both of those? I think the, you're saying the book's out in the US, the film's coming. And, and also beyond that, how can our listeners stay in touch, um, you know, either through Instagram or Twitter? What are your... What are the preferred socials for your side of things? So I have a website. It's, uh, well, sustainabledish.com is my nutrition website and my general website. And then the film is at sacredcow.info. 
And that's where they can learn about the film or the book, get the infographics. We are going to be releasing the film for one week for free later this fall, which I guess would be your spring. And so people can sign up for my newsletter and find out how to watch that for free. And then it will be available on mainstream platforms starting in about January, but I'm not sure when it's going to be coming to Australia, New Zealand. So definitely want to make sure that you guys get in on being able to get it for free on my website. And then folks can follow me on Instagram. I'm at sustainable dish on Instagram. That's my preferred social media platform. I rarely am on Twitter, but I'm at sustainable dish there. I have a Facebook page at Sustainable Dish, and I have a great podcast where I explore health and diet, and I talk to livestock producers, and that's called the Sustainable Dish Podcast. It's available on iTunes, and folks can find that on my website as well. Well, that's cool. We'd definitely be looking out for those ones, and I'm with you. I'm a bit over Twitter myself. (laughs) But, But Diana, before we sign off, our Australian pork producers have been really eager to hear this conversation today, and and we told them about it and then we got a lot of questions come our way and we've just gone through the questions, but you've pretty much answered them all. There was just one that came through about as an agricultural sector, we're not good at working together. Mm. We tend to be the pork industry, the beef industry, the lamb industry, the chicken industry, and then vegetable. Do you think we'd have a louder voice if we convey the message collectively? And if so, how do we do this? I do think there would be a louder voice. I mean, even within the beef sector, the grass-fed beef producers you know, think they're better than the typical beef producers here in the US. And I see value in both. I advocate for regenerative for environmental and ethical reasons, but also for that mom that, you know, can't buy that expensive meat, she should feed her kids meat, period. And so I really try hard to promote animal products from, you know, most sectors, because you know, if someone doesn't like chicken, they can eat pork. You know, bacon is sort of that gateway magical food that can convert vegans into meat eaters. And so I'm always recommending that. And uh, prosciutto, again, is, is one of my favorite foods. Sausages are a great way to get meat into kids and meatballs. So yeah, I think I don't know of an industry group that or or an organization that promotes all animal foods except for maybe Weston A. Price, you know, like the more nutrition-based groups. Um, so, yeah. you know, really trying to hammer that nutrition argument, supporting dietitians like me that are trying to help that out. We're actually raising money for an impact campaign so that I can go to schools and try to get this film in all the places that these vegan films have been because there's, again, there's no balanced dialogue at all when it comes to these conversations. I have my son's science teacher telling the entire class that they should just go eat these Beyond Burgers and other fake meat products if they want to be good environmental citizens. And somebody needs to stop that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and Diana, your message is clear. We do need to work together. And if we're not all working together, there's no time like the present to start. But um, Billy and I have absolutely loved chatting with you today, today, Diana. Your perspective and take on things is loud and clear and super interesting. So a really big thank you for joining us on our podcast today from both Billy and I. And we wish you all the best with the book and the film and whatever projects you've got next on your horizon. And as far as that goes, I'm sure there's plenty more to come. You ain't finished yet. (laughs) Thank you so much. I really appreciate your interest in everything and um, can't wait to come to Australia sometime soon. 
So, uh, Mitch, to wrap things up today, over to you first. What stopped you in your tracks lately? Billy, the rise and rise of both prepared meals and meal kits. So it's the prepared meals are the heat and serve, but the meal kits are the like a, a box that comes for seven days a week of boxes of all the ingredients to cook a meal and put a meal together to basically take out selecting what you're going to have for dinner. There's Marley Spoon, HelloFresh, those types of things. HelloFresh has reported 150% growth in their shares uh, this year alone. So it sort of shows how much more popular this things are coming. My son and his wife actually um, do the HelloFresh and they say that it works out cheaper than having all the ingredients. So I don't buy it at all. I think it's just lazy. <laughs> but it's going to grow. It's growing and growing. And I just need to make sure that we as Australian pork are part of that. We need to make sure we're on board. We're in those kits because... One of the things with the meal kits, they're actually teaching people to cook because they're training them to know what ingredients go together. So it's actually a really interesting space to watch and be part of. What about you, buddy? Um, for, you? for me, I'm, I, mean, I love flicking through Instagram and, and I'm a keen amateur photographer and uh, I was seeing Dan Young and Cootamundraway in New South Wales, the canola fields are out. And I just love, you know, those fields of gold. I mean, it's almost, you know, when spring hits like that, it's almost like yeah, you just get that quite happy vibe when you see them. And then some of the pictures are incredible. So I'm actually looking forward. I'm going to try and sneak down in the next couple of weekends, hopefully catch up with a few of our producers at the same time and take some great photos of, uh, of the canola fields while they're, before they get cropped. Sounds like a good trip, Billy. So there you have it, another great episode of Next on the Menu. Thanks to our guest today, Diana Rogers, all the way from the USA, my co-host, of course, Mitch Edwards, our producers, Boyd Britton and Ashley Gray, and to all of our pork producers around Australia who have helped to guide today's conversation. The podcast can be found on all good podcast networks such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can also find Next on the Menu across all Australian pork social channels or at australianpork.com.au. And we'd love it if you'd also leave us a bit of a review there as well. I'm Andrew Billy Baxter. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode of Next on the Menu. Listener.